Believe it or not, we're going to be in Matthew 9 for our reading. Verses 18 through 34. And while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came into him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See to it that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Good morning, church family. You know, you you may be, um, let me just address the elephant in the room. Some some of you might be thinking, are we really going to look at all of those verses? Because I've I've picked up on how these things go. And uh, so the answer is yes, we are. Uh, but but let me let me just encourage you that these um, miracles of Jesus recorded for us here in Matthew nine are very purposeful illustrations of uh, two very basic things. Uh, first, uh, the sufficiency of our King Jesus to do precisely what He's come into this world to do, and secondly, this sufficiency of the king who's come into this world to save his people from their sins is grasped, is, is obtained, if you will, by faith. Matthew, in, in writing chapters 8 and 9 of his gospel, is not moving us through some chronology of Jesus' life. He has very carefully, uh, led by the Spirit, chosen specific miracles that occurred during Jesus' Galilean ministry that we might understand that this Jesus is really the all-sufficient king God has promised to his people. And if you're to have what this Jesus has come to give, forgiveness, 
life, life from God, eternal life. Um, you must trust in him. Remember Matthew 1, verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. And early on, God's people would have wondered, you know, how can we be sure this is him? How, how, how can we be positive? Well, the, these miracles uh, are uh, the signs, rather, that we just heard read to us um, are the very things that the prophet Isaiah uh, had, had told God's people to look for. Listen to Isaiah 35, uh, verses 5, 6, and 10. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And the ransomed of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting gladness upon their heads. They will attain delight and gladness and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The, the, the inauguration of God's redeeming work in his world and, and for his people is underway in the work of this Jesus of Nazareth. He is Yahweh's anointed king. And you'll know that, says the prophet, when blind eyes are opened, when lame bodies leap, when, when, when mute mouths rejoice in the Lord. So again, we're, we're given these miracles um, in Matthew's gospel, not only to see Christ's power to heal, we're not going to skip that, uh, but, but first and more, probably foremost, to picture and prove his sufficiency to save his people. And, and as I mentioned before, um, the, 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 the means of getting a hold of this Jesus, the salvation that he brings is faith. The hand that grabs hold of this saving work of Christ is faith. And we'll see in Matthew 9, it's faith alone in Christ alone. Okay. And we see, you wish with me so far, all right, don't check out yet, it's, it's early on. Um, faith we see at work in the experience of this synagogue official. While, while Jesus was, was saying some things, behold, a synagogue official came and was bowing down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. Now, as Jesus was saying what things? Well, remember, Jesus had been explaining that he's come into this world to make all things new. He hasn't come just to add a little bit of religion to your life. He hasn't come to suggest a way that you could just sort of slightly tweak whatever it is you've got going to make yourself right from God. He's come to bring about the fulfillment of a new covenant. And this new covenant cannot be contained in any other religious system, not even historic Judaism. Judaism was a sign pointing to Christ, not the destination. And this salvation that Jesus brings in the new covenant is, is, is a life that's new. That's alive to God and, and is ever expanding. And to receive it, to receive him, you, you need a new heart. 
You need a flexible heart, an expandable heart, uh, because if you're to contain the life of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, it's, it's not going to be just the same old thing. It's something completely new. You receive this new life by faith. Jesus was explaining these things. And yet here comes this synagogue official, and he comes, says verse 18, and he was bowing down before Jesus. If you're somebody who writes in your Bible, actually, if you're not, write this in your neighbor's Bible, um, <laughs> bowing down, um, this man worships Jesus. This isn't merely begging. It, it, there's more to it than that. He's worshiping Jesus. Who did Jewish people worship? This big grand stuff. God, right? So this is scandalous what this man does unless Jesus is God. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He's Yahweh's anointed king. He's the eternal king who's come to reclaim God's world and God's people. And this man worships Jesus at great cost to himself. Um, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark and Luke tell us the guy's name is Jairus. Jairus um, is sort of outing himself here, even though he, he belongs to a religious establishment that increasingly hates Jesus. Just as the Magi back in Matthew 2 sought Jesus that they might worship him, so this synagogue ruler worships Jesus. He bows himself before Jesus as king, desperate to receive what only this king can give. Now think about the daughter for a moment. How this precious girl personifies the soul that is by nature dead to the life of God. She's not in need of, of slight improvement. Home remedy is not going to do it this time. She needs to be resurrected. She needs a new life. She's dead. Well, we'll come back to that. Before any of this resolves, no sooner has Jesus set off to Jairus' house then he is interrupted. Look at verse 20. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she was saying to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be saved from this. Think, think of the enormity of this. For 12 years, this poor woman has been suffering from some unstoppable bleeding. Uh, just the, the, the physical weakness that would result from something like that is, is almost unimaginable. Uh, but here's the thing. It's also embarrassed her. It, it, it has also shamed her uh, because under the Jewish ceremonial law, she is unclean. And anybody who touches her is unclean. And anything she touches is unclean. She is not allowed to be in the company of God's people when they worship. You could say she's alienated from the life of God and his people. 
and I won't, I won't take us there now for the sake of time, but if you go to Leviticus 15, you'll, you can read all about that. Um, she needs to be made pure. How interesting that Matthew uses an adverb, um, saved, um, saved from her impurity. She needs to be made well, uh, but it's, he uses a word that has a, has a double meaning in that sense. Her great need is to be brought back into the worship of God and the fellowship of God's people. She needs to be made whole. Look at her reliance upon Jesus, though. If only I touch his garment, I will be saved from this. Just like the synagogue ruler, uh, she knows that only Jesus has what she truly needs. And Jesus acknowledges her faith in him with compassion. Look at verse 22. Jesus turning and seeing her said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has saved you. At at once the woman was saved from her hemorrhage. Wow. Jesus calls her daughter. In other words, my daughter. Can you hear the compassion in those words? All she has heard for 12 years is get away from me. You're not ours. We don't even want to be around anything you've touched. Jesus says, my daughter, take courage. Your faith has saved you. The same warm response that Jesus gave to the paralytic back in verse 2 of Matthew 9. Remember that guy? Uh, Jesus said to him, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Just like that paralyzed man, uh, this woman's estrangement from the kingdom of heaven has ended. Says who? On, On whose authority? Jesus, the king says so. On the strength of Christ's word alone, not her touch, his word. Now, how is this being made whole, this being cleansed, apprehended by her? How how does she grasp it? She grasps it by faith alone, in Christ alone. Do you see that in the text? Meanwhile, back meanwhile back at the ranch, right? Meanwhile, back at Jairus's house. Look at verses twenty-three and twenty-four. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he was saying, "Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep." And they began began laughing at him. Now, let me just say, for the sake of clarity, we've already been told the girl's dead. And if you need some affirmation that the girl's dead, um, there are professional mourners now at the house. Because in Jewish tradition at this time, you had to hire professional mourners because you had to mourn for a certain amount of time with a certain amount of vigor, and nobody could mourn like that on their own, and so you had to have the pros come in and do it for you. In fact, the Mishnah even spelled out Uh, depending on your income, how many flute players you should have, how many whalers, if that's what they were called, you should have. 
Ancient Judaism had become a corrupt, false religion of pretense. It was all, it was all about the appearance, not, not the reality. And, and, if you, and if you wonder about that, um, if you wonder whether they were really grieving, did, did you notice that um, these people move straight from grieving to laughing just like that? Maybe that's why they're shown the door just before this girl's corpse is brought to life. Don't, don't miss that. Why? Because we're going to see in Matthew's gospel, actually, I read ahead, and we're going to see in Matthew's gospel that, that Jesus says, look, a day is coming when unbelieving, pretense-keeping religious people will be shown the door with finality. And there will be weak people. In fact, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But when the crowd had been sent out, verse 25, coming in, Jesus took her by the hand and the girl got up and this news spread throughout all that land. Jesus took hold of her. The girl got up. Uh, The girl is not asked to do anything. Why? She's dead. You don't ask a corpse to do stuff. It can't. That's, That's the whole point. So just file that away for later. Next, we're told of the faith of the the two blind men. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Note that. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. Here's two blind guys, you know, following the noise perhaps so that they can uh, draw nearer to Jesus and groping and stumbling along in their blindness. And, and, And they cry out for mercy to the Messiah, son of David. That's a messianic title. Matthew already told us that in verse one of chapter one, right? These two blind men, listen listen to this, these two blind men see Jesus more clearly than most of their neighbors. They believe Jesus is God's anointed king, the promised Messiah, sent to deliver God's people and straighten all that is crooked in God's world, starting with what's crooked in his people. And it's this belief, it's this faith in Jesus as Lord, as King, that Jesus references in his last phrase here, it shall be done to you according to your faith. So lest we miss the point, in all of these examples, illustrations, if you will, the blessings of the kingdom of heaven are are grasped, they're obtained, Um, They're made personal to you by faith in Christ and Christ alone. Have you heard this before? Why why keep touching on it then? Somebody said, yeah. (laughs) It's just terrible timing. Um, Because we live in a world that, that has no quibble with faith. Do you notice that? People all over the world have faith. 
In fact, you will have no trouble finding somebody who has faith in faith. Well, I just trust. You trust in what? I don't know. I just, I just trust. I just have faith. And the theological term for that is stupid, right? Because common sense, no, that's not a cheap shot. Because we're going to talk about spiritual blindness in a minute. Apart from grace from God, nobody sees this. Faith must have an object. Faith in and of itself is not what's strong. It's the object of faith that is strong or is not strong. Are you with me on this? Okay. So it's not faith in faith, and it certainly isn't faith in self. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and it's super religious, and, and God will grant me his favor because of that. Or you know what? Maybe I'm one of those people. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop doing that, and that will win God's smile for my soul. That's not what this is about. No, this is faith in Christ alone. Christ alone is saving faith's great object. And so we get a series of pictures here, really. All of them including that that primary color, if you will, in Matthew's narrative of faith. Faith in Jesus, the great object of saving faith. So in verse 29, you're still listening In verse 29, when Jesus says, it shall be done to you according to your faith, he's not even referring to the strength of the blind men's faith. Why would I say that? Because on your worst day, you might have at least the fleeting thought that goes something like this, I believe, but what if I don't believe enough? I mean, what if I don't believe as much as the person sitting next to me on the Lord's day? Because it seems like she's got a lot of faith. What, what, what if I have a day where my faith just seems really weak? Am, am I just sort of saved then? Uh, on the days when I have strong faith by feeling that I'm really saved? No, no, no. You're, you're not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the strength of your Savior and your King. Jesus is saving faith, great Object. It shall be done to you according to your faith. Uh, Not in proportion to your faith, just in response to faith, simple faith. And their eyes were opened, verse 30. Now, let me just stop. Man, I did it again. I did that in the first service too. I didn't didn't mean to say stop. Um, I meant to say pause. Let's just pause here and... um, Because we're going in a direction, aren't we? Isaiah prophesied what? You'll know that this anointed king that Yahweh has long promised to his people has come. You'll know that the kingdom of heaven is being inaugurated on planet earth. When you see these miracles, they are signs of heaven's king come to reclaim God's world. Um, he's come to establish God's rule over all things. He's come to rid this world of death and, and impurity and blindness and all of the symptoms of this world's primary spiritual problem. And what is that? You, you, you know this, right? Why do, why do 12-year-old girls die? 
cancer? Genetic disorders? Why do little kids die? Ultimately, people die because they're human and they're born in a fallen world. They're born into a sin-stained world. And the details for every death might be a little bit different, but the, the root cause, if you get high enough up in the bleachers, is always the same. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. By one man, Adam, sin entered human experience, the scripture says. So death itself is a symptom of mankind's greatest problem, sin. Ephesians 2 says this, you, believers, were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ By grace you've been saved, and he's raised us up with him, with Jesus. Anybody want to say amen to that? By nature, okay, next time without a prompt, all right? But (laughs) by nature, listen, sin renders us unclean. That's the next picture in Matthew 9. Shut out of friendship with God. Shut out of fellowship with God. Fellowship with his people. Not unlike that woman with the hemorrhage. And it's a hopeless condition. And we're powerless to remedy that condition ourselves. We, we need help from outside of us. And Job 14 verse 4 asks this question. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? Well, that's, that's God's stuff, isn't it? Jesus can, says Matthew. The king And the king alone can do this. Will you reach for him? Will you trust that he will not look away? He'll not be repulsed by you. He'll not recoil in disgust. He'll notice your reach. Feeble as it is. And he'll not give you a long list of things to do that you're incapable of doing within yourself. You don't talk to corpses and expect much. The king's compassion is such that all who reach out to him the way this woman with a hemorrhage reached out for him will be made clean, saved. Have you reached out to this Jesus? And and, and what of blindness? Do you realize that apart from grace, I alluded to this earlier, apart from grace... Uh, all people are spiritual blind. That, that, that is the, the birthright of every man and woman on, on planet earth. Born in spiritual blindness, not able to see reality. Not knowing about it. Not even necessarily caring about it. I'll give you a quick illustration. Are you pressed for time? I'm going to tell it anyway, but I just want to know where you stand on it. Um, H.G. Wells, the guy that wrote um, War of the Worlds, um, it's been remade a jillion times. Everybody knows about War of the Worlds. I'm not going to give you an illustration from that. Um, but, but he wrote a shorter work called The Country of the Blind. 
And, and in, this, in this story of the country of the blind, it's about a mountaineer who falls down a mountain while he's climbing in the Andes in South America. And he tumbles off of this mountain down into an isolated valley who is, whose inhabitants are all blind. And for generation after generation after generation, it's always been this way. No one in this village had been able to see. Normal life for them was the blindness they'd been born with. And the climber lived among these people for a while until they grew really irritated and angry with his talk of stars and, and trees and colors and sunsets and all of this stuff. Um, they thought he was nuts because they had no concept that there was even such a thing as sight. They thought he was delusional. So much so that eventually the villagers planned to cut the guy's eyes out, thinking that they would cure him from his delusion, this, this persistent, confident belief in sight. And, and you say, well, that, that's just a weird story. And that's fair enough. It's a weird story. Um, but it comes really close to being analogous to the reality that men and women apart from grace are born into. The thing of it is, is, is all people are, are born in the country of the blind when it comes to spiritual truth, unable to see the truth of God, ignorant of and quite often hostile to. We just heard about that from... Uh, the, the missionaries working up at Kokolala. Parents don't want their kids hearing the gospel. Well, they're, they're li they live in the country of the blind, you see. Unable to comprehend reality. How many of you know this is reality? This is reality. This is no fiction. And God comes to us in his word and he says, you know, it, it takes eyes of faith. That's, that's what... That's what's being illustrated here for us in Matthew 9. Faith is the hand that grasps salvation that is found only in Christ and Christ alone. Just think about it this way. Created to glorify God, sinful man instead denies God. Have you not seen that in the world around you? And she remains in the grip of the God of this world, blissfully unaware perhaps, but nonetheless in his grip. And their great purpose of glorifying God is silenced by Satan. Just like we see here in verses 32 and 33. It says, Now as they were going out, behold, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. A man... Silenced by sin's curse, the demonic, in this case, is set free to proclaim the praises of God. I'm just spitballing here, but I'm guessing you couldn't get the guy to shut up about Jesus. Now, what do all of these miracles teach us then about Jesus? Why are we looking at them all at once instead of one at a time? Well, first of all, we don't want to misunderstand 
the main point here. The, the point is not that you get whatever you want from God as long as you have enough faith. Don't think that. That's not what you're seeing here. And I'm mentioning that because there is a false gospel in our day, the prosperity gospel, that says God really wants you to have whatever it is your sinful heart wants you to have. And if you just have enough faith and ask him for it, you'll get it. In fact, if you don't get it, it's because you didn't have enough faith. You should go get some somewhere. More on that later. That's not what this is about. Certainly, this is about Jesus' power over illness. Jesus' power over the demonic. Jesus' power over blindness, those types of things. And so when those we love or ourselves are are ravaged by these these physical ailments, uh, of course we run to God. We run to Christ with these things. And we put our trust not in an outcome. We put our trust in the king who does all things well. I mean, think of the synagogue ruler. He's, He's worshiping Jesus. You know what I want, but I surrender myself to you. The big picture of Matthew 9 is simply that we might have faith in Jesus' sufficiency to do that which he came to do for his people. He will save his people from their sins. How can we be sure? Well, let me show you these pictures of his sufficiency, says Matthew. Do you realize that when our king comes again, and he is coming again, when our king comes again, Um, there's not going to be blindness and there's not going to be demon possession and there's not going to be dead little girls and there's not going to be any of that stuff that has its roots, its origin in the fall, in sin's curse. He's come to destroy the works of the devil. Amen? Amen. And and, and what work... There you go. And, And what work of the devil is he primarily destroying now? He's destroying the works of the devil in his people. He's, he's rescuing his people from the grasp of sin and Satan, the God of this world. Now, we could um, stop at that, but I think, and I don't think we'd be harmed too much by it, but I, but I don't want you to feel gypped. I, th- I, think we should, I think we should keep going a little bit because um, people sometimes do ask, And just a little bit. Don't get upset. Um, Well, what is faith then? Is it a feeling? Is it it that the way that I feel on a Sunday as opposed to a Friday? But what is faith? Well, first and foremost, if we had kept reading in Ephesians 2, we would have been reminded that faith is actually God-given. You don't go to the store for it. You don't go to another person for it. Uh, It's given by God himself. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. No one in this room who has saving faith got it themselves. It's a gift from God. And so clearly Matthew is showing faith. This this gift from God is a practical confidence in the power of Jesus. Do do you have confidence in the power of your Jesus to save you? Like he said, 
he will save you. And saving faith, though it is a, a mystery in that sense, is the means that God gives us to grasp this grace, great work of Christ. Faith is a gift from God enabling repentance, enabling allegiance to Christ. No one does this on their own apart from the gracious work of God. And though there is a mystery to this, I want to just suggest to you three different ways that, that we can describe faith that might help us get our, get our heads around this mystery. First of all, faith requires knowledge. Faith requires knowledge. That's why it's silly for anybody to say, I just have faith in faith. Faith must have an object. Um, faith requires knowledge. The, the synagogue ruler knew about Jesus. The, so, did, so did the woman with a hemorrhage know about Jesus. The, the blind guys knew about Jesus. The, 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 the people around the demon-possessed guy, the mute guy, knew about Jesus. So yet you have faith in someone or something because you have knowledge of that someone or something. Uh, where there is faith, there is knowledge. Um, God comes to you in his gospel and he says some absolutely scandalous things that you would not otherwise know. He, he comes to you and he says that he, God the Son, left the glory of his heaven and lived righteously as a man in humanity the holy life that you haven't lived and can't live no matter how hard you tried. And then he died on Calvary's cross. God did this. And in his humanity shed the only blood that could be shed to atone for the sins of God's people. Your sins. And our Jesus doing all of this for us has been raised again to life and, and this eternal life. He, he shares with his people. Now, now, let me just say, you have faith and your faith involved knowing this, right? Somehow, God made sure that you knew this truth so that when Jesus proclaimed from that cross, it is finished with faith in your heart, that's appropriated to yourself. I pray that describes you. It really is finished. Jesus really has done everything necessary for me to be made right with God. It's not on me, it's on him. Well, what about the days where I just feel weak in my faith? Well, you've got a strong savior. In fact, he's never weak. Romans 10 says this, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear Without a preacher, if sinners are to be saved, somebody's got to tell somebody else about Jesus. Faith in, involves knowledge. People cannot believe what they do not know. Now, let me just encourage you, friend. You, you, you don't have to know everything about Jesus to have saving faith, do you? Faith does not require an exhaustive Bible knowledge. 
You simply have to know that God sent his son into the world to save you. And he is sufficient to do so. That's why Matthew is giving us all of these pictures here in chapter 9. You don't even have to know what um, sovereign election is. But everyone saved by faith is chosen. You don't even have to know what sanctification is. But everyone saved by faith in Christ alone is being made more like Jesus. You don't have to know what glorification is, but everyone who is saved by faith in Christ alone one day will be made like him and see him as he is. Do you believe this? So you don't have to know everything. Do you know Jesus? And so there's knowledge in faith. But notice that knowledge of gospel of the gospel alone is not faith. Uh, look at verse 34. The Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. See, there are, always who, there are always going to be people who choose to stay in the country of the blind. And, and, and they would sooner gouge somebody's eyes out, really, than admit their precarious state before God and their desperate need to be rescued. That's the Pharisees, depending in themselves, depending upon their religion. So knowledge alone is not faith. And if, and if, if it seems like I'm maybe a bit urgent in this, it's because I am. I, I don't want anybody here this morning thinking they're saved simply because they've heard the gospel. Faith requires agreement. Faith agrees that everything God says in his gospel is true. You come to the gospel with all that you understand. You even come to the gospel with the stuff you don't understand. Uh, but, but you believe it's true because it comes from God. By faith, I agree to the truth of what God tells me in his word. This Jesus is the all-sufficient king, and he's my king, and he can do all of the stuff that I can't do for myself. I know this is true because it's from God. So I ask you this morning, do you agree with God's gospel? You say, well, I've heard, I've heard that I think this is maybe the 480th time I've heard the gospel. Praise God. Do you agree? Because faith requires knowledge, but that's not enough. Faith requires agreement, but you know, that's not enough either. If I know the ship is sinking, and I agree that life vests are a swell idea for those who are about to drown, and yet I don't put a life vest on myself, um, I'm still lost. And so you see knowledge and agreement, however vital, are still not enough. Faith requires surrender. The synagogue ruler surrenders himself. That's what worship is, an act of surrender, a pledge of allegiance, if you want to put it that way, to Christ as Savior and King. You cast yourself entirely upon his mercy and his promise in the gospel. What he says for you 
What, what he says he'll do for you, he will do for you. So I ask you, not so much whether you have knowledge. I trust we have much knowledge. And I ask you not so much whether you agree. I, I, I pray you do agree. I ask you, have you surrendered yourself to Christ, the King? I want you to notice in the text that it isn't even obedience that grasps salvation. Did you notice Jesus told the blind guys, hey, keep quiet about this stuff. Um, and they really stunk at that. They, they, I mean, I guess you could just say they disobeyed. I mean, how, how else would you describe it? So obedience, the fruit of saving faith, obedience is not the, the cause of saving faith. It's not what earns faith. It's not what earns salvation. The blind guys couldn't stop talking about Jesus either, and it, it was simply their faith in Christ that, that grafts the blessing of the kingdom. Christ is faith's great object. And, and that really is Matthew 9 in a nutshell. What, why all of these, these pictures, Matthew? Why, why all of these real-life episodes of the miraculous from King Jesus? Well, it's so that you might see that he is sufficient. He's sufficient to do what he says he's come to do. He will save his people from their sins. Lord, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that as, as you, Jesus, have been lifted up in your word, that you would be pleased to do what only you can do. Lord, are there those among us full of knowledge, maybe even nodding their heads in agreement, and yet, Lord, still choosing to live in the country of the blind? Lord, Lord would you give sight spiritual sight to blind eyes among us today. And Lord, would you use that little reminder from your word this morning that if, if others are to know about your saving work, um, they're going to have to be told. Lord, would you give us mouths that delight to speak of you? Would you, would you give us mouths that reflect that we have been set free from the God of this world, that we are not bound in that sense any longer, and we're free to praise and proclaim the King of Kings. Jesus, we ask you this in your name. We ask it for your name's sake, that your kingdom would grow among us here. Amen.